Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And as usual, I am joined by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Yurashami. Last week at the beginning of the show, we told you that we would be discussing two new lawsuits that we recently filed. We did discuss the lawsuit we filed in federal court in Michigan on behalf of a Catholic organization that was denied a special land use permit to build a modest chapel, just 95 seats, on their 40-acre property in Genoa Township. As I mentioned, there is a federal statute, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, or RILUPA, that prohibits land use decisions that substantially burden religious exercise. The township's denial in this case plainly violates the statute as well as the First and Fourteenth Amendments. The second lawsuit was filed against Twitter and the Biden administration in federal court in Arizona. It is a class action lawsuit. We ran out of time last week, so we're not able to discuss this very important case. And we will do so today, and we'll do so right out of the box to make sure that we have uh, the time uh, necessary to dedicate to that. And David, my colleague, is the lead counsel on the Arizona case. And so at this point, I'll turn the mic over to him. David, welcome, and please tell our audience about this really very uh, important and in many ways exciting lawsuit. Thank you, Rob, and uh, hello to all our listeners. The lawsuit that we filed on behalf of Dr. Colleen Huber, a naturopath, medical doctor in Arizona, who has been on the forefront of questioning the protocols requiring the use of masks, and more recently on the efficacy and potential negative consequences of the vaccine. Now, it's important to just say she hasn't taken a position that one shouldn't receive a vaccine or that the vaccines are inherently dangerous. She has only raised the question about the consequences or the effects intended or unintended of these vaccines. Now, it happens to be that she posted a link to an article in the Arutz Sheva uh, newspaper, the online newspaper. It's the Israel National News Service. And that article simply quoted two other researchers who were questioning the mortality rates resulting from the use of the vaccine in Israel and other nations. Israel, of course, was a kind of laboratory because they were um, very quick to isolate everyone. They were very quick to distribute vaccines and in fact were part of a national study for the vaccine manufacturer that was involved um, to study the outcomes both the immunological responses and any bad outcomes well these two researchers looking at some of the data questioned it now dr huber's Twitter link where she linked this article made no comment. She simply posted a news article. Now, Twitter, and this was um, post Biden administration, Twitter informed her that her account was suspended. She appealed and then they informed her that her account was permanently suspended don't email us, don't appeal any further. Literally, that's what they told her. Now, she turned to us, and in the course of our examination, we found news articles published by Reuters and others 
in which the Biden administration had reached out to the social media giants, Facebook, Google slash YouTube, and Twitter, and had enlisted their support to curtail the anti-vaccination or the vaccination um, uh, fake news or conspiracy theories or however they articulated it. But their point was, the Biden administration's point in the news article and the social media giants who were embracing that purpose was not to protect scientific facts about the vaccine, but rather to protect the policy of the Biden administration to get everyone vaccinated. Now, those are two very different things. We've talked about the difference between science and public policy on this podcast uh, continually, and I, it, it needs underscoring. Science can only measure things. It could measure if a vaccine um, is effective in the short term. It could measure the effects of the vaccine over long term. We haven't studied the long term effects of the vaccine. We don't even know if the vaccine is going to ultimately be effective year to year or against all the possible variants. We're now told there's a new variant called the Nile. They're the Delta variant out of India that is um, uh, far more um, uh, infectious and, and might even have uh, a greater um, disease effect. It might be more dangerous than the original um, virus. The point being is that the Biden administration reached out to the social media giants and effectively deputized them as, their in, as its enforcement arm. Because the Biden administration itself, if it went and shut down social media accounts, that would be a clear violation of the First Amendment. The government may not censor speech, especially when it comes to viewpoint or content-based speech. Now, private entities in and of themselves, and as it were in a vacuum, can do so. They have terms of use, terms of service, which is a contract. And if the contract allows them to do so, they may do so. Many have argued that the social media giants aren't even following the contract terms. That's a harder argument to make, but it's possible. But in this case, we don't have to go to the terms of service because the social media giants have admitted in this article, as well as the Biden administration, that they have engaged in a joint action, a meeting of the minds to collectively enforce the Biden administration's policy to promote the vaccines and therefore censor the speech based upon content and even viewpoint of various speakers. In our case, Colleen Huber. Now we've filed the lawsuit. Now, two weeks ago, we've um, served the government officials. We're waiting for the return of service back from the US Postal Service, the little registered uh, receipt that we get so that we can then go to the next stage of this litigation. We have served the Twitter defendants because we didn't just sue President Biden and certain unknown officials within his administration. It, over time, we'll find out who they are and we'll name them. We also sued Twitter and Jack Dorsey, the CEO. 
they've been served with a waiver of service. It's a special document under federal procedure, which makes it easier to serve individuals. And we anticipate that we'll be getting back that waiver of service within the next several weeks. And we will then get into the next phase of the litigation. What's interesting, and we think powerful about this litigation, is that the one thing you hear often by defendants, especially government defendants, once you serve them, either their COVID protocols or censorship of any type, what they do is they then say, well, we, we're not going to do that policy anymore. We quit. And they go to the court and say, you should dismiss this lawsuit because no harm, no foul. We're no longer doing it. And then they just start up again, or, and we've had this happen to us, they say, we're not going to enforce our policy against their plaintiff. We will force it against anyone else, but not against their plaintiff. So this plaintiff's lawsuit should be dismissed because in federal court, you can't just get a, a kind of an opinion by a court that this is bad behavior. You have to have a plaintiff who has standing, meaning who has been actually harmed. So in this lawsuit, what we have done to avoid that problem of dismissal is we've sued Biden and Twitter not only on behalf of Dr. Colleen Huber of Arizona, but on behalf of every other similarly situated person, otherwise known as a class action lawsuit. And in this way, the only way this case would get dismissed for any future harm would be based upon an absolute ending, a termination of this kind of censorship. Now, the lawsuit's going to continue because there was still past harm. And we can argue that that past harm uh, led to nominal damages, and we should get a declaration that it was unconstitutional. And that declaration would then and could be used going forward for anyone else who's harmed in the future because six months from now, Biden and Twitter get together again and decide to censor somebody else's speech about something else. The point being is that this lawsuit is now positioned to stop this and similar bad behavior by the social media giants when they align with government. Right. And the, and the, the point about uh, suing on her behalf and on behalf of similarly, similarly situated individuals, it's a class action lawsuit. You hear all the time people about, can we bring a class action lawsuit? Um, and you have to certify a class and people have to truly be similarly situated. And, and I think this is a case where, you know, certainly we can, uh, we can make that argument. It's a colorable, uh, colorable claim. Uh, just a little uh, Con Law 101, Federal Litigation 101, you brought up the point about um, what, what the courts refer to as advisory opinions, right? You have, to have, you have to have a concrete set of facts. You have to have two adverse parties um, that, are, that are engaging in, in, you know, in conduct that have adverse legal relations that the court can decide. Um, there's under Article Three of the U.S. Constitution, it limits the power of federal courts to what's called cases or controversies, and this cases or controversies language um, developed into various what the courts call justiciability doctrines. You have to have standing; the case has to be ripe; it can't be moot. And so, all these issues we're co we constantly are dealing with because they're, they're, it's easy for a court to take a very controversial case 
and and find some way to say, oh, there's no standing, or this case is now moot, or it's not ripe, and and, and dismiss it along these uh, somewhat procedural, they're substantive because it's a jurisdiction question, but never getting to the actual substantive claims. And so we're trying to, you know, avoid all of those uh, all of those uh, types of uh, uh, results in this uh, in this particular case going against these um, these particular defendants. So it's it's going to be a very uh, very interesting case and. Um, we're going to be working on a similar one in um, in Washington D.C., which is going to uh, kind of lead to this next uh, segue. You know, we mentioned in in prior video cast podcasts that Facebook censored one of our podcasts, claiming we were providing false information about COVID. <laughs> More specifically, they have they have COVID community standards now, right? This goes in line with what David was just saying. This stuff's all been worked out hand in hand with the Biden administration on on shutting down, uh, you know, social media. So they have this, they said we were providing false information about COVID. More specifically, they censored our video cast where we discussed the evidence showing that COVID-19 was more likely than not leaked from the Wuhan lab. <laughs> well, as we are seeing now, and we'll be discussing a little bit more later in the show, we were right. And uh, in fact, so was Trump. And I think the, uh, the, the slogan should be across all the papers here over these next uh, several months was, Trump was right about so many things, whether it be Russian collusion, whether it be the, you know, the Wuhan, the virus, uh, uh, coronavirus coming from uh, the Wuhan lab, or, you know, the issues of immigration, the, you know, the, the, the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, the uh, stolen election, I mean, this go on and on and on. But anyway, so we were discussing the evidence showing that COVID-19 was more likely than not leaked from the Wuhan lab. And again, as we are seeing, uh, we were right. The evidence is mounting. We are preparing a lawsuit against Facebook for this uh, Orwellian censorship. Well, the other day, YouTube, and we have our video casts. We do these as a video cast and a podcast. Our video casts, we, they, we, just, we show them on our um, YouTube channel and also on our Rumble channel because Rumble doesn't censor like YouTube does. Um, but so far, they've been pretty good until just recently, that being YouTube. And so the other day, YouTube censored one of our earlier video casts where we discussed the vaccine. And we were given what YouTube called a strike. They apparently give you three strikes before shutting you down. But nonetheless, they pulled the video cast from our YouTube channel. And, uh, and they asked us if we wanted to appeal. And of course, we did. And we submitted an appeal. In fact, this is uh, precisely what uh, we said in our appeal. Quote, our discussion of the vaccines contained factually correct information. Please explain what fact, not opinion, but fact we stated that was incorrect in your indisputable evidence for your claim. If you cannot do this, then you are engaging in fraudulent behavior that is harming us, end quote. Well, what do you know? I just checked the other day and the video cast is back up and playing. And there's no, uh, no indication whatsoever of their censoring or any strikes or anything else at YouTube, you know, these... Uh, these tyrants do at, uh, at YouTube. But, you know, tyrants, they are like schoolyard bullies many times. If you punch them in the face, they'll often run away. So we, uh, we pushed back on YouTube and they, uh, they relented and they put our video, put our video back, uh, back up. So let's, uh, David, let's this time, let's, I want to turn to some of the, some of the headlines because it's tied into what I was just talking about. Um, and the fact that Trump was right and the left was wrong, no big surprise. In fact, they weren't just wrong. They lied many, many times. There was a, a Fox News story um, talking about, again, the, uh, the origins of COVID-19. This one was uh, published on June 6th 
The title of it was Damning Science Shows COVID-19 Likely Engineered in Lab. And this is how this story begins. Damning science strongly suggests that COVID-19 is a man-made monster optimized in a lab for maximum infectivity before hitting the outside to catastrophic effect, according to two experts. And this was, they were writing in an, in an opinion piece for the Wall, Street, uh, the Wall Street Journal. And one other point that the highlight at the end of this particular story, it says in this, and Dr. David's going to get into this, uh, it says the presence of the double CGG sequence in, that they identified in the, in the sequencing of this particular virus is strong evidence of gene splicing in the absence of diversity in the public outbreak suggests gain of function acceleration. The scientific evidence points to the conclusion that the virus was developed in a laboratory. And let me just, I want to make one other point before I turn it over to David. He's going to have a lot more information about this. He also sent me an article. Uh, David sent me an article from Nature Magazine, which is a, which is a, a very prominent, well-respected uh, journal in, in science. And this one was dated November 12th, 2015. And the title of it was, Lab-made coronavirus related to SARS can infect human cells. And I want to read just a couple of excerpts from this because I think it's important. An experiment that created a hybrid version of a bat coronavirus, one related to the virus that causes SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome, has triggered renewed debate over whether engineering lab variants of viruses while with possible pandemic potential is worth the risks. Uh, I think they might answer that question in a no right now, but, but it goes on to say, the argument is essentially a rerun of the debate over whether to allow lab research that increases the virulence, ease of spread, or host range of dangerous pathogens, what is known as gain-of-function research. In 2014, the U.S. government imposed a moratorium on federal funding of such research on the viruses that cause SARS, Influenza and MERS, which is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, a deadly disease caused by a virus that sporadically jumps from camels to people. The latest study was already underway before the U.S. moratorium began, and the U.S. National Institutes of Health, NIH, allowed it to proceed while it was underway by the agency. The NIH eventually concluded that the work was not risky, as it was not so risky as to fall under the moratorium. And to bear in mind, NIH, National Institutes of Health. Underneath one of the institutes, one of the 27 institutes under NIH, is the National Institute of, of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. It's part of NIH. And who, by chance, was the head of that department in 2015? Well, it was none other than Dr. Anthony Fauci. In fact, Dr. Anthony Fauci had been the head of the uh, of NIAID since 1984. And if you recall what I said that last part, the NIH eventually concluded that the work was not so risky as to fall under the moratorium on this gain-of-function research. So you don't think that Dr. Fauci knew about this gain-of-function research in these laboratories back in 2015 when he was the head of the national <laughs> of the NIAID, which is part of NIH? It's just not even plausible. Uh, Fauci's under a lot of uh, Fauci's in a, in a lot of hot water right now, as he should be, as he should be. So, David, I'll turn it over to you. I know you've got a lot more information uh, 
on all this and these these two articles and some other information as well. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's such a fully packed subject. And in reality, it boils right back down to the the initial question that we've raised over and over again. I've already talked about it here. What is science? And what is public policy? Because if you understand that distinction, and especially what is science, then you understand how it is that human error, human biases, ideological, political biases are dressed in the guise of science by bureaucrats like Fauci. And then the rest of us are challenged to ever challenge him or anyone like him. Because if you accuse me of wrongdoing, and this is a quote from Fauci, based upon accusations of late, that he lied about several critical aspects of this pandemic, the most important of which is that his organization and the NIH, more broadly speaking, never funded gain of function research at the Wuhan laboratory, which is palpably and demonstrably false. And we'll talk about that. So again, science can be, and it is fundamentally only about measuring things, how big something is, how fast it is, how many things it can infect um, and so forth. There's another aspect that we call science, but it's less about science than it is about humans. There's what we call scientific consensus. Everybody looks at the experiments, all the scientists look at the experiments that measure certain things, and then they draw conclusions about what those measurements mean. Classic example, global warming. There are various measurements that suggest global warming and that suggest anthropomorphic sources. Nothing tells us, however, that global warming is some kind of permanent trend or that humans have anything to do with it. Nothing tells us with certainty. Scientists look at the evidence and then reach a consensus. And there's no way to know what that consensus actually is. Does it require 10 scientists, the 10 best scientists, the 10 worst scientists. There clearly are better scientists and less good scientists. It doesn't tell us if it has to be all from one country or internationally. And how do you measure it? We don't know. It's an informal conclusion. So until, when people tell you, well, there's a consensus in science or it's science tells us, be wary. Now, much of scientific consensus is true, but much of it has been proven false later, right? We always read those studies where uh, science has found that X, Y, Z causes cancer. And then we find out, well, maybe not, or that ABC prevents cancer, and then maybe not. And much of that is poor reporting by the media, the scientific uh, journalist. But the reality is science on consensus has been wrong throughout time ever since there was a thing called scientific consensus. Now, when Fauci told us that there was no gain of function research being done, why was that important? 
as Rob pointed out in the Nature article 2015, the issue of gain of function research as incredibly dangerous has been debated now since even before 2015. But it became a serious debate around that period of time, which is why the Obama administration embargoed gain-of-function research in the U.S., but with exceptions, which allowed the NIH and, and Fauci and company to fund it abroad through a loophole. But why was it important? We know that there have been numerous lab escapes of deadly viruses in the past. I'm just going to look at an article from the government that tells us that in 1977, the N1, the, excuse me, the H1N1 human influenza pandemic, um, there was an escape from labs with that virus. Uh, small park, smallpox outbreaks in Great Britain from 1963 to 78. There were three smallpox escapes from two different laboratories. The 1995 Venezuelan equine encephalitis, VEE outbreak. 10, 000, in 1995, 10,000 people in Venezuela and 75,000 people in Colombia fell ill with a V strain that escaped from a lab. The outbreak caused upwards of 311 deaths, 3,000 cases and neurological complications. The question is, did those lab workers or the lab supervisors get punished? The answer to that should be obviously not. Various SARS outbreaks. There have been various SARS outbreaks. In 2003, 8,000 infections and 774 deaths across 29 countries. Since that original epidemic, there have been six escapes of the virus from laboratories. Four in Beijing, that's China, and an additional one each in Singapore and Taiwan. 2007 foot and mouth disease outbreak in the UK, also caused by a lab escape. This isn't, and of course we were told by several individuals, the former head of the CDC who told us just recently, that lab outbreaks are common. And why? Because of human error. It is, first of all, very difficult to maintain a pristine, absolutely sealed environment for any length of time. Humans get lazy, humans get negligent, humans get reckless, and of course, occasionally, humans do it intentionally. Now, we know in China that gain-of-function research was being done just like it's being done across the globe by the major research countries like the U.S. Why? The argument for gain-of-function, and Fauci in 2017 argued vehemently in favor of gain and of function research to continue and they created even greater loopholes in 2017 that's during the trump years time period the reason that fauci and others argue for it is they say look there are a host of viruses especially coronaviruses which we know exist in places like China because bats are major carriers and other mammals, but bats are a huge carrier of many different strains. And that in China especially, 
there's a human animal interface with the wet markets. Um, they eat a lot of these animals. They go out in the wild and collect them themselves. They get around the fecal deposits, the poop of these animals. They breathe it in, the people who are harvesting these animals for food. And what happens is even though originally those viruses in the bats and other mammals are only likely to be transmitted within that animal species, over time, you can have mutations which allow it to go across species and infect a different kind of host or become more viral or become more dangerous. That occurs in nature. And so what these scientists say is we need to do gain of function to see how these viruses jump species, how do they become more infectious, and how do they become more viral? How do they become more dangerous? That research, they say, and those answers from the research will help us create vaccines or predict future viruses that we can anticipate. On the opposite side of that argument are many in the business of studying viruses, microbiologists, virologists, who say, look folks, it is far too dangerous to engage in this kind of research because what we're doing is creating the future deadly pandemic in a lab where we know mistakes are made and will be made because it has happened over and over again. And that's why the Obama administration initially banned it in this country with loopholes. And the major loophole is if the head of an agency thinks it's absolutely critical to get this research done, he could sign off on it. And of course, that's what's happened. Now, there's another reason for gain of function research, and that's converting viruses that are deadly to make them more infectious, to make them infectious of humans, and to use them as weapons, biological weapons. And we also know that China and the US were doing that kind of research. Again, that's not a mystery. One of the leaders in the movement by scientists to curtail this kind of research was Richard and is Richard E. Bright. He's a professor of chemistry and chemical biology of Rutgers University and a biosafety expert. He's been in the news of late because he has pointed out demonstrably that the NIH has in fact funded under Fauci's tenure, gain of function research at the Wuhan lab. Now, the arguments right now are that there's no evidence that it came from the lab. Well, as we've pointed out ad nauseum in our previous podcast, the fact is, is circumstantial evidence is almost overwhelming that it came from the Wuhan lab. And, and Rob can walk us through that later. But what we also see now is that at the DNA and molecular levels, 
we can see aspects of this virus that point the finger toward human manipulation. It doesn't prove human manipulation because that manipulation could have taken place through mutation in nature, but it would be very unusual for that to happen. All of the published work that goes and says, well, while the lab theory is a possibility, it's highly unlikely, and it's far more likely to have occurred in nature, the problem with that statement is that it misses two things. One, and a major issue, is that there's no evidence in nature that the markers that Rob mentioned, these amino acids that are in a special combination and juxtapose one to the other. The CGG sequence. Right. That there's nothing to indicate in nature that that has ever occurred or has occurred. And it would be highly unlikely. And so there's, there's no connection between the bats and humans, none. And indeed, we know that ground zero in China, at least all the evidence suggests it. And again, this is part of the consensus that patient one in China was in Wuhan. The, the cave where they found the closest coronavirus to our COVID-19, but it's not the same was in a bat cave many, many kilometers away. The bats were in hibernation. The likelihood of someone contracting it there and coming to Wuhan and infecting Wuhan is not very high. The second thing one has to consider is that there is gain of function research when it's being done for military purposes where the government's researchers are not going to use the manipulation that other scientists can see. They want to disguise the fact that there's human manipulation and that gain of function research is possible and it is ongoing and you can bet that China does it. And by the way, there's not that many labs in the world that do this kind of research. There were a couple and are a couple in the US and there's the Wuhan lab in China, which is the central lab for the Chinese Communist Party for medical research and for military research when it comes to biological weaponry. Now, Dr. Ebright points out in an article, and maybe we can get it posted, uh, where he is quoted, and it's now essentially out in the public domain, that he can actually point to two different um, sources to prove that Fauci lied. He wasn't being disingenuous. He wasn't being uh, ambiguous. He lied to Congress when he said, in response to Senator Paul's questioning, whether or not the NIH and Dr. Fauci's organization uh, which is a subunit of the NIH, infectious and allergy diseases, that um, whether or not those organizations, those agencies have been funding gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab through this third party. His answer was absolutely not. Well, if you look at 
the NIH site for funding, you can literally see the research that was done. And all you have to do, and I'm just going to go to it quickly here, if I can find it soon enough. And just read you the blurb. on this research. So the, the NIH, Understanding the Risk of Bat Coronavirus Emergence. This research was a project number, has a project number. The um, awardee was that Echo Health Alliance Inc. run by Peter Dazek, D-A-S-Z-A-K. And he was the one who uh, was on the WHO panel to investigate the source, in other words, he was part of the research. And here's what the research did in part. Test predictions of COV interspecies transmission, predictive models of host range, i.e. emergence potential, will be tested experimentally using reverse genetics, pseudovirus and receptor binding assays, and virus infection experiments across a range of cell cultures from different species and humanized mice. Folks, that is one of the definitions of gain of function research. Reverse genetics, pseudovirus and receptor binding assays, etc. These chimera viruses, they, they create an artificial virus by taking a virus that could not otherwise infect humans and sticking various things on it so that it can infect humans and then they stick it in humanized mice to see how sick those mice get and how infectious it is and the researchers who are working there could very well have been infected from those researchers the uh, humanized yeah. mice. <laughs> Any idea what that could be? Yeah. To help well, yeah I, out? They, I can't imagine they, what that is. Yeah, they raise these mice with literally human cells, right? I mean, that, that's, they, that's how they do it. Now, here is an article entitled, that was published by the Chinese researchers, Discovery of a Rich Gene Pool of Bat SARS-Related coronaviruses and provides new insights into the origin of SARS coronavirus. And when you go down and you look at what they did, again, it's the same thing. It's gain of function research. Now look, here's the funding. They have to have a funding statement on these peer reviewed published studies. And here's the funding. This work was jointly funded by the natural, the national Natural Science Foundation of China. That's a communist China party entity. China Mega Project for Infectious Disease, Scientific and Technological Basis Special Project to YZZ and ZLS, which are other agencies, from the Ministry of Science and Technology of China, the Strategic Priority Research Program of the Chinese Academic of Sciences, the U.S., excuse me, the National Institutes of Health 
and they give the grant number. The USAID Emerging Pandemic Threats Predict Program and some other organizations. There is no question that the NIH and Fauci's organization, and I always mumble through the, the, uh, the abbreviation, but it's the organization within the NIH. Rob, you have it? it? Yeah, it's NIAID, which is the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Diseases, right. Yeah. That these organizations, these agencies of the U.S. government have, in fact, funded gain-of-function research. Now, what Fauci is going to say, well, this gain-of-function research wasn't on the COVID-19 virus. Well, we don't know that. And we don't know what they created with this reverse engineering. We have no idea. And the fact is, is that anyone who would imagine that the Chinese Communist Party researchers, and I don't care how well-renowned they are and how well-published these Chinese researchers are, not only is their livelihood and not only is their reputation, but their very lives are dependent upon holding the party line and doing military research along with civilian medical research. There is no way in the world that Fauci could have sent $600 plus thousand dollars to the Wuhan lab and tell you with a straight face anything about the use of proceeds. It would be inane at the best, but it's criminally reckless to do so and then to tell the, the, the American public that the government has not been involved in that kind of gain-of-function research. It is a lie. Now, what is Fauci now telling us? Fauci is now announcing that anyone who attacks me on the basis that I told people not to wear masks, and then I told them to wear masks, or I told people there's been no gain-of-function research, and maybe now there is, but I still say you, the likelihood is not that anyone who attacks me or criticizes me is attacking science. He has created this persona that he is science. But keep in mind what we've already said. No one is attacking any scientific measurement here. If Fauci wants to point to a measurement, how infectious something is, how viral it is, how many hosted effects, we're all not in agreement. Show us the science, show us the measurements. But when you start pronouncing on policy, you must wear a mask because you must not wear a mask because well, it's not going to do you much good. Well, you must wear a mask because it's going to do some good. That's policy. That's not science. What he then says, well, my pronouncements are based on science. But that's like me saying that um, evolution is bunk based on science. In other words, I can take measurements and make all kinds of statements. I can say that cigarette smoking does not cause cancer. Now, that's based on science. That's because I've taken the same measurements 
that the number of people who smoke and the number of people who get lung cancer and the number of people who die from lung cancer versus the number of people who don't smoke and get lung cancer and die from lung cancer. And I've come up with my own conclusion. Now, that conclusion can be idiotic. There's a pretty strong scientific consensus that cigarette smoking does cause cancer. But science doesn't tell us that it causes cancer. We all know that. It's a relationship. All Fauci has done is make pronouncements about what he and the other bureaucrats think we should hear. And the criticism of Fauci is not of science, although there's plenty to criticize of science, because scientists are still humans. They still publish in peer-reviewed journals, bunk science. We know it all the time. There's been macro studies of published research, which turns out to be absolutely invalid research. And other researchers have, have proven this over and over and over again, because we're humans. They're not infallible. They don't lack biases. And they don't lack the desire for big paychecks for their research and for their new homes and where do they do the research? They do it where people are willing to pay for it and pay for a certain answer. If you want to research that global warming does not occur, you're not going to find money. If you want to research that global warming is caused by humans and is occurring, then you're going to get tons of money. Well, you'll have to fight with everyone else getting money, but that's what's being funded, not its opposite. The same is true here. Fauci is trying to equate the measurement of science with consensus and more importantly with public policy and more than that he's trying to anthropomorphize science by making himself the persona of science and the reason he does that is because he knows he's now subject to legitimate criticism and if he can insulate himself by making this a red blue thing a democrat who worships science and you don't go after men of science. Of course, Democrats and progressives went after men of science when it doesn't suit their purposes. But if it suits their purposes, then science and the men of science are somehow semi-demigods. Anyway, that's the end of my rant on that, Rob. I want to I add to your rant, and rant uh, here. You know, the, the world is caving in on, on Anthony Fauci, right? The, the hero who's on the cover of all these... Uh, magazines and throwing out first pitches at baseball games. And, you know, he loves all the, uh, as it were, the greetings in the marketplace. And for him to say, if you criticize me, you're criticizing uh, science, the hubris of that, the hubris of that is just unbelievable, unbelievable. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really not science. Somebody I, I had heard, I was listening to some other show and they were talking about, you know, science versus scientism right? And, and scientism essentially being almost like the religion of science, right? It's like you, and we, right, the left says this all the time, you know, science is real, science is real. And as we've mentioned many times, well, biology is part of science, but apparently they could care less about that science, right? They care less about the science that the unborn child is a human person, right? They can care less about science with all this transgendered nonsense that's just corrupting God's creation. You know, they could care less about science. And now you have Fauci, right, who's, who's this uh, kind of hero of the left, who love this coronavirus crisis, by the way, right? This totally fits into their, into their methodology and ideology. Never let a good crisis go to waste. Quite frankly, this crisis had an absolute, in, in my mind, I'm totally convinced, 
was was outcome determinative of the election, right? This these crises are ways for them to main, gain and maintain and control power over people. Tyrants do that. Fauci is just he's the guy's either a useful idiot or he's he's a conniving individual. I'm of the view right now that he's a conniving individual. And you look at what he's doing and what he's saying and how he's trying to defend himself and protect himself um, throughout all of this. If only we'd have a real media out there who would who would get to the bottom of this. We don't. But right now they're being forced to have to address these issues because it's so patent the way that he lied. And in just going back to one of the other points, David, about the uh, you know the the coronavirus, right? I think the evidence is is plainly pointing towards the fact that this came from the the Wuhan lab, um, and that it was part of this gain of function research, whether it was released intentionally or, or by accident, again, knowing motives and intents, those are the hardest things to prove. But consider this, right? The, the, we know that the Chinese Red Army was intimately involved with this laboratory. We saw that in, in other stories. You know, having spent 13 years in the Marine Corps, we used to always have training in what was called NBC training, nuclear biological and chemical. Biological warfare is a real thing. Major militaries around the world, including China, including the U.S., but certainly China, are doing research for biological warfare, offensive and defensive. No doubt China is looking offensive. China's ultimate goal is world dominion. Make no mistake about it. It is world dominion. This coronavirus has been more lethal and more impactful than, you know, any nuclear weapon that was, I mean, this thing, this thing was a nuclear weapon in so many ways. And again, was it released intentionally or accidentally? I don't know, but it came from the Wuhan lab. When you look at all the circumstances of this, this is how you would develop a bioweapon and one that was exceedingly effective. We can see by the, by its, uh, by its impact. So, right. you have the red, so you have the Chinese army. Let, let me run through these. You mentioned yeah. before about the various evidence about pointing to this as a bioweapon. You have. But one second, can I pause you for it? Let me pause yes. you because I want to set that up because that's yeah. important to go through. But I want to just make one point. Richard E. Bright, the a microbiologist who came out against this kind of gain of function research and who's pointed out that Fauci lied about the funding, he was interviewed. And the interviewer kept asking him, well, can we say that it's 50-50, that it came from the lab or it came from nature? And Ebright kept saying over and over again, properly so, from a scientific point of view, I can't tell you what the odds are. It is possible that it came from the lab and it's possible it came from nature. There's no scientist could articulate a probability, likely or less likely. Right now, we don't know. Now, from a scientific measurement point of view, that is correct. And even properly so from a real consensus. But keep in mind, science is only for measuring. When it comes to acting in, in national security affairs, when it comes to war and peace, when it comes to COVID protocols and public health, we don't get the answer from science. All they can do is measure things. We have to look at the evidence. And when you look at the evidence that Rob is now going to walk us through, what you're going to find is that the greater likelihood is that it came from this lab. And then the question is, was it an accidental leak 
or was it part of a military project to see what would happen if this got out and maybe they had vaccines, maybe they didn't, we don't know. But that's what you look at. And I'm not saying that it was a military project. I'm not saying it was intentionally released. I'm simply saying that, that when a scientist tells you, I can't tell you if it was nature or the lab, that's relatively meaningless because there's enormous circumstantial evidence that it came from the lab. And then the question is, by accident or on purpose? Rob, it's all yours. Right. And, and you know, bear in mind, I mean, we don't have access to, you know, top secret information and everything else. But even this, this just the, the, the facts that I'm going to run through that, at least out there in the, in the public domain, accessible to the public, demands a serious, serious investigation into this. Right. And I'm not talking about the World Health Organization, because that to me is one of the facts showing that there's that there's something that went seriously wrong here in a, in, in a way that I think uh, is demonstrative of malfeasance. And the first thing, you know, I mentioned, you know, in, in open sources, the Red Army was actively involved in what was going on in this lab. And to think that they don't have an offensive bio, uh, you know, bio warfare uh, program, you're you're. Uh, you're 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 insane if you don't think that's the case. I mean, you're 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 just not you're just not attuned to what it is that China is actually uh, actually trying to do here. So you have the Chinese, they have the connection with the Chinese Red Army to this lab. You have we know that there was workers from that lab who had symptoms from COVID-19 prior to the release of this particular pandemic. Now that kind of obviously leans to the fact that this came from the lab, but that information was was available. China didn't report that to to anybody in the you know the World Health Organization or notify people that there was hey there's a possibility that this there could be a virus that's leaking out of this lab. Nothing. Silence. Crickets. Right. We we're seeing now evidence that uh, that they were actually developing a vaccine to the to COVID-19 well before the uh, the actual pandemic. Hmm. Why is that? You have the travel restrictions. Right. Bef again, before the world is notified that there's a serious problem going on, China shuts down domestic travel from Wuhan, but opens up and re allows to stay open international travel. Right. So essentially sending these human missiles with this virus to all the major places of the world, like uh, Europe and New York City and elsewhere, where these were, which became epicenters for the spread of this virus. And then the, the one final piece, and there's, you know, there's likely more, but the one final piece I have here in my notes is this whole, you know, World Health Organization investigation. What a joke, right? And we know that there was an absolute cover up there. We know that China denied them access to the actual locations and scientists and information that they would need to actually make a proper uh, conclusion as to whether it was leaked. Why would you cover up something? We talked about this before, you know, we're lawyers. Right. And you can get an instruction when you have when you have a, a the opposing party destroying evidence or hiding evidence and you can demonstrate that the judge will instruct the jury that you can use that as an inference against them, that that evidence was negative or that that evidence would actually support your particular position. In this case, that it was an intentional leak from the uh, from the Wuhan lab. So when you look at this, the evidence, you know, everybody says, oh, direct evidence, direct evidence. Circumstantial evidence, the vast majority of cases that are prosecuted in this case, every, in this country, every single year, criminal cases beyond a reasonable doubt. And we, this isn't, we don't need to be on a reasonable doubt here. We just, we need to, uh, you know, quite frankly, prove uh, by a preponderance of the evidence. And then China needs to pay for this. But we need to show by a preponderance of the evidence 
that this that this was nefarious activity going on uh, by China. And I think the fact that they cover this up and the World Health Organization was complicit in this is uh, is damning evidence. And I'd love to take this case to a jury because I think I would win this case um, that China should be held liable. And then, you know, that just gets to kind of the, the one of the last issues. How should we hold China liable? How should we hold them responsible? You know, when you think about all this in the grand scheme of things, right, Trump was like China's worst nightmare. He was the first president in, in my lifetime, really, that was standing up to this big, you know, this sleeping giant uh, over there who was, uh, you know, basically becoming the world power um, while we were, you know, sleeping at the switch and sending them all our industry and everything else. China, Trump woke up and was pushing back against China. And, oh, lo and behold, you know, the election goes adversely, and Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and his whole clan, they are in bed with China more than any other politicians that I've seen. Is this all a coincidence? I don't know. But to me, it's all more evidence of just the nefarious nature of this uh, COVID-19 leak. And from somebody who spent four days in the hospital and it was kind of, you know, nip and tuck in terms of, you know, what my outcome was going to be. Yeah, I'm, am I angry about this? You, you bet I'm angry about this. I'm angry about how many Americans that were killed because of this China virus and how much it, it ruined the, uh, you know, our, our children's education, how much it affected the economy, lost people's jobs. China better pay for this and they better pay dearly for this. That's the end of my rant, David. Yeah, well, it was worthwhile. And, you know, this, the, there's one other piece of evidence that I read from, from those scientists who study viruses um, that came out and said, you have to take the, the lab theory seriously, not just because of the juxtaposition of the amino acids that we talked about, um, which is a special placement, um, which would more likely occur in a lab than in nature. They point out that when viruses mutate in nature over time to jump species and to become more viral, more infectious, they evolve in relatively small steps. Now, it's possible they leap, but generally speaking, the whole theory of evolution is that you have you know, all of these kind of micro mutations that take place in all kinds of cells. And that the survival of the fittest dictates that over time, the most fit ones will win out. But it takes time. And that's why they're smaller phased steps. What we see with this virus is that somehow it leaps out of nowhere and it is massively infected, infectious. And so you don't see that. And you don't see its cousin in the animal kingdom with that kind of infectious ability, which would also infect mammals or humans in particular. So you put all that together and we have a lot of evidence that China is responsible either negligently, recklessly, or intentionally. And while science doesn't have an answer yet, we don't wait for science, right? We convict people of murder and place them in jail for life or even subject to capital punishment without science telling us that they pulled the trigger. We can even put people in jail for life or for long periods of time or subject them to capital punishment by a jury of their peers without DNA evidence. In fact, people have been convicted of murder and there's some famous cases out there 
where we don't even have the body of the murder victim, but all of the circumstantial evidence points to the fact that there was a murder and that this person did it without even knowing factually that there was a murder because of circumstantial evidence. And that's the evidence that we depend upon. People who say we have to wait on science, and then of course, what do the scientists tell us? They tell us we might never know. Well, certainly, if you wanna cover something up, what will you do? You will enlist scientists to say, we, science can never know the answer to that. Well, science can never know the answer that cigarette smoking causes cancer. Science can never know that global warming is actually occurring. Science can, meaning through the greenhouse, Science can never know that man causes that. Again, that's, this, that's using the scientific consensus on its head. In other words, it's criticizing the very theory of scientific consensus by saying, since science can only measure things, we can never know for certain how this thing developed because we weren't there. We weren't there to measure it, to film it. And if we weren't there, we can't know. Again, science has its limitations. We can draw conclusions about consensus along with scientists, but more importantly, we can draw conclusions about blame and about policy consequences. In my view, like Roberts, I if, if we get a little bit more evidence from the Wuhan lab, although I'm pretty well there now. And we can actually determine with enough evidence, circumstantial evidence to have a reasonable belief, not beyond a reasonable doubt, a reasonable belief that this was caused by China, negligently, recklessly, or intentionally, then they should be held responsible for every bit of damage that this country has suffered, including the death and destruction of so many lives. And as far as I'm concerned, that would be telling China that we're going to delete all of our debt to you. We're going to impose all sorts of trade tariffs on you. We're going to make your life miserable. Now, the U.S. would never do that. I mean, Trump, Trump might. might. Yeah, Trump might have. Yeah, but that's there's nobody else. There's no and one. That's, and by the way, Trump would try to do it. <laughs> and the shadow government would bring him up on impeachment charges yeah. and we'd go through the same thing because that's what we saw before. Yeah. yeah, that's, and obviously, you know, holding China responsible is not a question of science. It's a question of, of politics and policy decisions and having politicians who have the guts to do what would be the right thing in the face of evidence that's presenting them. So, well, hey, that's uh, that's really all the time we we have today, and you know we spent a lot of time on this uh, on this lab uh, lab leak issue and China's involvement, which I, um, I I I I enjoyed being part of this discussion. Hopefully, our listeners as well. And again, that's all the time we have today. We we thank all of you for joining us, and we look forward to our our next uh, podcast video cast. As you know, our video casts are posted on our Rumble and YouTube channels, which you can find on our website. And our podcasts are posted on Spotify and Stitcher. Just do a search for Faith and Freedom Fighters. And if you like the content, please follow us and please spread the word. And again, thank you once again for, uh, for watching or listening. And as always, may God bless you and may he continue to bless America.
And before I say amen to that, which I will, um, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, we dare you to censor this podcast. We dare you because you will find yourself in federal court the next day. That's, that's my invitation. Amen. Amen.